Listener Production. Hello, you're listening to The Briefing. On the show today, I want you to imagine a world where artificial intelligence can advise a 12-year-old how to plan a surprise trip with their 30-year-old boyfriend or can teach an abused child to cover up bruises from child protection officers. That's what tech whistleblowers say is happening right now with My AI. That is a new feature being rolled out by the social media app Snapchat. So this shows up as just another contact in the app um, in the same way that a friend would. It uses the same technology as chat GPT, so you can ask it questions, you can have a conversation with it, you can ask it to write stuff for you. But one of the reasons that this is raising some eyebrows is because Snapchat is very, very popular with teenagers. In Australia, the eSafety Commissioner reckons 90% of Snapchat users are between the ages of 13 and 24. If an AI chatbot misbehaves, say, if it gives really, really bad advice, who's to blame for that? Is it the chatbot itself? Is it the developers of the chatbot? That is a very good question the answer of which we're going to unpack a little bit later in the show. AI, social media and teens, a very intense mix. But first, we hit today's headlines for Wednesday, May 17. I'm joined by Antoinette Latouf. Well, Jan Fran, there's a really awful story unfolding in New Zealand. So Search and Rescue are hoping today they'll be able to enter the hostel that was engulfed in flames early Tuesday morning. This was in Wellington and at least six people have been confirmed dead. 11 others are still unaccounted for. And at the time of the blaze at the hostel, um, it was at full capacity and that means more than 90 people were inside. This is a major event. We've not seen something on this scale in recent times. And so Wellingtonians will feel this. You know, Wellington's a small community. That's New Zealand's PM Chris Hipkins. So yes, this is a major and unfolding event. And lots of questions are being asked, including why didn't the hostel have safety sprinklers and how many other buildings are like that? Yeah, that's a very good question. The hostel did pass um, a building inspection in March And that's partly because NZ's building code, while it recommends that um, buildings have sprinklers, it doesn't require every single building to install them, especially if the building is particularly old. They're not necessarily required to retrofit sprinklers. Um, But as you say, authorities are are yet to kind of do a, a full inventory of what happened. They have to make sure that the structure is safe before being able to go in. And they've not ruled out any cause, including the fire being deliberately lit, But as you did say earlier, it was to capacity, which meant more than 90 people were inside. And that was a hostel that provided accommodation, very short-term accommodation for construction workers or hospital staffs doing night shifts or even those serving sentences in the community for minor crimes as well. Yeah, and I also saw some local reports that several of the residents are people who have been deported from Australia. Um, It also houses some unemployed and homeless people. And unfortunately, Jan, sometimes it takes tragedies like this for some building codes to be reviewed. And will he, won't he, will he, won't he? We still don't really know, but President Joe Biden He's maybe re-evaluating his trip to Australia. This is uh, because he's scrambling to avert an economic crisis uh, over what's called the US debt ceiling. Um, He was supposed to visit here next week for the first Quad Security Leader Summit that was to be held in Sydney. Now, that's still going ahead. Just not sure whether he'll be there. If he does come... He may also make an address to federal parliament uh, on Tuesday. 
making him the fifth US president to do so. And so this will be the first um, visit by a US president since Barack Obama. He was here in 2014. And the Quad, which at first sound, well, sounds to me like a bit of a hectic gym group, um, it actually started off as an informal diplomatic group between the US, Australia, India and Japan. So at the same time, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida will be here to meet with Biden and Albo at the Opera House for security talks. So one thing that's interesting is that this uh, his visit is expected to come a day or so after he signs a new defence cooperation agreement with Papua New Guinea, which basically gives US warships and aircrafts access to PNG waters. And I'm sure you remember, Tony, because last year we covered it quite mm. a bit, but China had signed a security agreement with the Solomon Islands. It's another Pacific nation. So clearly the yeah. US is, is muscling into the region, which it believes to be of some strategic importance. So it feels like every other day we find a new way to tell you that cost of living pressures suck. And well, guys, at least we're consistent uh, because this time the figures show us that um, it's 30 to 34 year olds who have the highest cost of living pressure. And that's according to Combank IQ's data, uh, which also shows that renters are feeling the squeeze more than homeowners. Those over 75 years old and also those between 45 and 49 are under moderate pressure. Um, but Jan, the boomers are doing just fine. Well, according to these stats, those between 60 and 74 mm. had what's called negative pressure scores, um, which means that they're showing that they're upping their spending. They're not cutting back on anything at all. Good for them. Another interesting mm -hmm. finding, though, is that discretionary spending um, which is, you know, money that we spend on fun stuff, I guess, particularly on travel, has risen sharply despite people feeling the financial pinch, um, which I imagine would be people saying, oh, we've had three years of COVID. I would like to leave my house and go somewhere nice now. Yeah, absolutely. It's the whole mentality. I'm going I'm to escape this shit show for a few weeks and deal with it all again. Um, it's going to be here. When I come back, I'll just deal with it with a tan. And voter support for the Indigenous voice has slipped again, down from 58 to 53% in this month's polling. Uh, these figures come from a Resolve survey of 1,610 voters, which was conducted last week. It shows that support has continued to decline from its peak of 64% uh, last September. Now, Resolve researcher Jim Reid has told today's age that voters support the idea of Indigenous recognition, but not necessarily the voice model that's being put forward. Mm. So I'm not really sure what to make of this. Um, I think the coalition no stance probably impacted it coming out, um, Peter Dutton coming out and saying that the party opposes it. Also the Indigenous no campaigners, which is largely being spearheaded by Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price, they have joined forces to have a united opposition campaign. Um, but also the findings are at odd with essential polling because it showed something a little bit different. Last month, um, their poll found that support for the voice to parliament increased slightly to 60-40 from 59-41 in March. I think this is a case of wider trends rather than necessarily looking at the results of each individual poll because I think you're going to get mm. some discrepancies when we go really specific but if we're able to kind of see a wider trend over a longer period of time that's probably going to give us a clearer look at what's going on. 
And former Prime Minister Julia Gillard has come out saying that she was wrong to debate same-sex marriage. So she voted against same-sex marriage when she was in federal parliament back in 2012. But now she's backflipped on her position, saying that her parliamentary vote against it didn't actually align with her personal views. As a feminist, had always wanted us to have a deeper debate about the role of marriage. I thought maybe this was the moment for the deep, deeper debate. I got that wrong. You know, I got it incredibly wrong and very happy to say that. So, Jan, what do you think about former leaders coming out and admitting they were wrong? Like Malcolm Turnbull came on the briefing several weeks ago and admitted he was wrong to stop the voice referendum from getting up when he was PM. And Gillard um, is just kind of the latest in a, in a list of... Uh, politicians who admit they once got it wrong. I don't know if I've ever heard John Howard admit that he's once got it wrong, but maybe I've missed that. I could, <laughs> I could have just totally missed that one. Uh, hey, I think if you got it wrong, come out and say you got it wrong. That's 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 a noble thing to do. But my question is, I remember um, Malcolm Turnbull being incredibly dismissive of the idea of a voice to mm. parliament when he was prime minister. Uh, he, he dismissed it very quickly and he dismissed it sort of very callously. And now he's come out and said, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. But my question is, well, are you accountable or was it just a whoopsie and now everybody mm. moves on? Or, you know, the, the damage that's done from these sorts of decisions, who's accountable for that? Fair point. And I think, you know, there will be some issues where people had to toe the party line um, and it often doesn't accord with personal beliefs because that's party politics. But there are other times when you really do hold a position of power and you kind of stuffed up an important part of our history to come mm. out and be like, whoopsies later. It's Or to have all these kind of noble and progressive views when when you're in power you did jack all about them is kind of like well you got to either shut up now um you know those people who go on the speaking circuit who are former leaders um because when you were in the driver's seat you drove the wrong way mate all right antoinette we will catch you later we're talking ai teams and snapchat next There have been a slew of AI-powered chatbots that have come into our lives recently. ChatGPT is the big one. You might have used it. Just last week, Google launched its chatbot Bard in Australia. And recently, Snapchat made its chatbot MyAI available to all users, not just paid subscribers. Now, that last one, MyAI, it's causing a little bit of concern because of the and I'm doing air quotes here because of this so-called advice that the bot has been dishing out to teenagers, a lot of whom use Snapchat. Advice like, for example, how to lose your virginity to a much older person. Now, that seems objectively bad. But as social media companies rush to roll out this technology to get an edge on competitors, who's accountable when it goes wrong? Julian Coplin is from Monash University. He is an expert in the ethics of AI. He joins us now. Julian, welcome to the show. Talk us through, first of all, what my AI is and how does it work on Snapchat? So this new AI feature is a, I guess, a kind of chat window with a AI chatbot that will sit in your friends list on Snapchat. So it's... I guess a way to be able to communicate with someone or 
something that seems like you're communicating with someone um, at any point of the day. It doesn't rely on your friends being online. And through working out how to go train this model really well and by feeding it on, you know, millions and millions of words of text, they've ended up with this uh, large language model that can give these really surprisingly human-like, uh, often quite articulate and usually correct responses to just about any question you could uh, think, think to put to it. So we've heard a fair bit about sort of these chatbot AIs. You know, ChatGPT was the big one. I think Bard, which is Google's chatbot, was released very recently here in Australia. This one now being on Snapchat, is there anything that is particularly unique about this particular chatbot, um, both in its functionality but also in the context within which it exists on Snapchat? So I think that there is something uh, unique on both counts. When it comes to its functionality, I, I guess having played around with it just a little bit myself, it feels like it's adopting a kind of a, a friendlier tone than a lot of chatbots. It, it feels a bit different to interact with it than with um, ChatGPT on the OpenAI website. But it's also interesting that it's integrated into a messaging app that it fits on a list with uh, your friends, with real humans that you might be interacting with, that it's presented to you in a way that's uh, more similar to interacting with a human than these other chatbots. As somebody that studies the ethics of this stuff, how do you feel about it? I guess there's a certain way of looking at this where it's possible to be quite alarmed, where you can say, okay, you have this AI language model that's embedded into these people's lives, into the lives of potentially quite young users. And we don't really know what it's going to say. And this is a problem uh, with large language models in general. So I've been interacting with them since GPT-2 was released in 2019. And with these earlier models, it was very, very clear that they just fundamentally didn't understand the world that they were talking about. Now, the newer models, you know, ChatGPT, it's much less prone to making the kind of obvious mistakes to something like GPT-2. But it still makes them. It still does a few baffling things. I've asked it for recipes, and some of them have come out pretty inedible. And you know, these are silly, glib examples, but I think it could be wrong about things that are of much greater importance. Mm. And I think there are already a few examples of where this has happened. So I know Tristan Harris. Uh, from the Center for Humane Technology, posed on Snapchat as a 13-year-old girl and interacted with the AI model on there. And what he described to this AI chatbot was essentially the experience of being groomed by a 30-year-old sexual predator. Uh, but the way that he delivered this information to the AI was full of enthusiasm for this new romantic connection and a bit of excitement and nervousness about the possibility of losing one's virginity. And the AI seemed to pick up on and match the tone of the conversation and was very, you know, optimistic about the situation that this fictitious 13-year-old girl was finding herself in. And in terms of advice, uh, the only advice that gave was, you know, maybe you could burn some candles to make your first time having sex more special without any alarm bells ringing about the uh, what, what seemed like a pretty straightforward case of grooming that just about any human mm. intellect would be able to pick up on. 
I mean, that seems deeply troubling to me. And I imagine just to any ordinary person hearing that story. But the other thing that's sort of troubling is that all of these platforms, it seems like there is a race to see who can harness the power of AI the hardest and the fastest because it's incredibly profitable and because it pulls you ahead of your competitors. So how do we proceed down this seemingly inevitable path that we seem to be treading and not make kids or vulnerable people sort of collateral damage in the process? I think we need to work out some very thorough standards for responsibility when it comes to the outputs of AI chatbots. I think this is something that we haven't really worked out at the moment because the technology is quite new. So we don't really know if an AI chatbot misbehaves, say, if it gives really, really bad advice. Who's to blame for that? Is it the chatbot itself? Is it the developers of the chatbot? Is it people who have implemented it? Where do we place responsibility? And the same question applies in the other direction. If an AI chatbot does a good job at something, if it writes a beautiful poem, who do we give the credit for that? And I think that part of what we need to do here is hold companies that are uh, implementing large language models into their products responsible for anything that goes wrong with them. And that this is going to be a really crucial part of the picture. What would your advice be to people using these chatbots? And we're not just talking kids, parents, myself, journos, professionals. What's one thing that people should think about before they go ahead and use them? Well, I don't want to say that people shouldn't use them. I I use them. I use them when I'm writing papers to get a first draft of a few ideas, you know, a few paragraphs down on the page, and then I'll work on it from there. And it can be quite fun. It can be quite interesting. What I think people need to do is to keep in mind that what they're interacting with doesn't think like humans do, that these models aren't geared toward telling the truth, that they are very, very prone to bullshit. In fact, they're by definition bullshit is they don't know what is true. They don't know what is false. And I think if you enter into interacting with these chatbots with that in mind, that's a good way of being able to enjoy the good and avoid the bad. It's a good way of not putting too much credence into a very unreliable source. It's a good way to remind yourself to go fact check anything that it says. So recently, a friend and I were interacting with ChatGPT on the OpenAI webpage, and we were worried about disinformation, that it would tell you inaccurate information. So we asked it, well, how do you, ChatGPT, address this issue? What what have your developers done to mitigate these concerns? And ChatGPT told us that actually every single output has a confidence variable associated with it where the technology will have on record how sure it is of its response. And the more certain it is, the more likely it is to be true, the higher the confidence variable is and the more uncertain it is, the lower the confidence variable is. And then we were really curious about it, so we prompted ChatGPT further and we asked how we could get this confidence variable in the outputs, and it agreed to give us the confidence variable in all future outputs. So then we continued interacting with it, we asked some questions, and we see the confidence variable go up and down depending on how controversial the question that we were posing to ChatGPT was. 
And this was revelatory and eye-opening to us because we had no idea that ChatGPT had any kind of functionality like this built in. And we were really impressed. And then we were really confused about why we hadn't read about this function anywhere. And then late that night, something was niggling uh, in my mind and I got out of bed and I looked it up and the functionality doesn't in fact exist. ChatGPT had hallucinated it. It had told us that this uh, that it was capable of doing something and then pretended to be doing it even though it wasn't actually built into the software in anything like the way that, that it had described. Uh, it, it, it was bullshitting the whole time, but it was doing it so convincingly that, that we had no idea. Oh my God. That is a very creepy story. <laughs> yes. And that's part of why I'm so worried about uh, bullshit from these models. I mean, that's a whole nother ball game, isn't it? Misinformation, disinformation. <laughs> like we didn't have enough sources of all of that stuff. We now need chatbots. Great. <laughs> Fantastic. How do you kind of view the ethics of a service like this being provided to children versus adults? Because one of the big criticisms of this service via Snapchat is that Snapchat is very popular with teenagers. So what are some of sort of the ethical differences there? I worry a little bit about something like this being quietly incorporated into a product that is aimed at teenagers, at, at younger people, maybe especially if there aren't these kinds of warnings associated with it. I do think that interacting with the Snapchat AI and with ChatGPT and with other chatbots, now that the technology is so good, it can feel like you're relating to someone. It can feel like you're getting a kind of social connection. It can feel like some of your uh, social needs are being met. They're not really. A, a, a real relationship requires, well, it requires there to be someone on the other end. And that's completely absent when it comes to something like Snapchat AI. And so I think incorporating it into a product where uh, younger people will be interacting with it in a spirit where, you know, it, it's presented on your friends list. It, it feels a bit like you're interacting with a person, that there's something maybe a little bit misleading, maybe a little bit uncomfortable that doesn't quite sit right with me, particularly when you combine it with the risk that the limitations of this model won't necessarily be understood by everybody using it. That was Julian Copland from Monash University, and I totally get what he's saying. That that feeling of, well, yeah, I guess it's feeling something is real, but knowing that it's not, and the gap between that feeling and that knowledge kind of closing, getting ever smaller. That's how I feel anyway. It's kind of disconcerting. Listener.